Let's pray. Jesus, we do praise, praise your name this morning. And but we don't want to do that just in words. We want to say, here's my whole life, Lord. That you can have all of it. Um, and not just the dressed up Christianity part, but the whole thing, all of me. Good stuff, bad stuff, all of the mess. Just lay it all at your feet, knowing that you're the only one that can do anything about all this stuff. So we just um, ask that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to us through your word because that's the only way we're gonna change. And we invite you to do that change from the inside out to sanctify us and, and change us more into your likeness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please have a seat. <clears throat> so we have been uh, traversing our way through the book of Revelation. And along the way, there's a few normal points where pastors get. And there's kind of this like caution, falling rocks ahead. And it's like, okay, I should probably stop. Well, we're just going to keep powering right through all of those. And so we're jumping into a part uh, that just starts to get a little bit more difficult. And, I, and so I'm going to do my best. I, you know, as I, as I preach and stuff, sometimes I have this bad habit of giving way too many caveats. So I'm going to do it at the beginning and then we'll just all understand that's what's happening. Okay, so what, what we're diving into today and, and really the whole book of Revelation, but what we're diving into today, there are very, uh, there are especially four different interpretive lenses that you can take when you come to this passage, okay? We don't have time to cover all of those. One thing we have been doing um, is trying to cover some of those extra things that we can't necessarily get to in the sermon. We've been trying to do that in our podcast that we've been putting out every other week called Behind the Sermon. And so that's a, that's a place for, as we go through the book of Revelation, we can talk about some of the stuff that we can't necessarily touch because of how much time we have on a given Sunday morning. And, um, and so what we're going to do today is really dive into uh, trying, to, trying to glean some practical applications out of this passage. And, um, and so if you have questions or you want to hear more about what are some ways that other people view this passage and stuff like that, you can listen to the podcast. And also um, you can, uh, on our website, you can ask questions and we will respond directly to your questions on the podcast. We love doing that. So please just know that that is there. And what we're going to get into today is just a thin slice of all of the thoughts that people have about this passage. Okay. So what we're doing today is we are looking at the universal truth that we're finding in this passage. So I want to jump in. We'll read the whole passage and then we'll just start to go through and look at these different pieces that we see unfolding in chapter six. So let's start in verse one. It says, then I saw the lamb open one of the seven seals. So remember, we just came out of chapter five, where we see Jesus as the lamb who was slain, the only one who's worthy to take this scroll. And what that scroll represents is basically God's plan to bring justice for evil and to redeem people to himself to make his, to make a redeemed family or call a redeemed family to himself. And so Jesus is the only one who is worthy to take that seal and actually open it, to begin to open those seals. So we're, that's what we're going to jump into today. Jesus is going to begin to open the seals of that scroll. So, uh, so I saw the lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. A crown was given to him, and he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another. And a large sword was given to him. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and there was a black horse. Its rider had held a set of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. 
When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and there was a pale green horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following after him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the only one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made from hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And he said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? So these four horses and just all of the uh, all of the judgment that is coming now and we will see this progressing throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. Um, I think it's important that we, again, remember and lay a, a bit of a foundation for the judgment of God. Um, <clears throat> so one thing that you see all throughout scripture is that judgment is never just, it's never just one dimensional. That when God brings judgment, generally there are some forewarnings, right? And that's something we see about the character of God all the time, that he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So his judgment isn't done quickly. It's also not done gleefully. That his judgment always has a dual purpose. Number one, to use a theological term, it's purgative. Or it's for changing someone's heart to recognize their need to repent from their sin and turn to God for salvation. So we see that happen like in the account of Jonah when he went to Nineveh. He told them, hey, God is going to bring a great judgment upon you unless you, turn from your, unless you turn from your sin. And they did. And God withheld his judgment. And so the judgment really had its effect before it even took place. You also see in places like in the Exodus with Moses, he comes to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, God says to let his people leave. And Pharaoh says, no. So God begins to bring one judgment after another. And through each judgment, Pharaoh is given another opportunity to repent and to do what God has commanded him to do. And he chooses not to over and over again. His heart is hardened. And that's a phrase that is used. So his heart is hardened. And so that's what God's judgment does. It either brings us to our need for repentance and our need for a savior, um, or we just become more entrenched in our rebellion against Jesus. And so in that way, as God is passing judgment, not only are his judgments always righteous, but they also always prove that his judgments are righteous. Because we are always given an opportunity, probably many, many, many opportunities to choose to turn to Jesus for repentance or turn to God uh, for repentance um, or to stay uh, in enmity to him. Eugene Peterson writes this in his book called Reversed Thunder. He said, we do everything we can to make light of judgment. We use every stratagem we can find to avoid dealing with the consequences of sin. But God will not let us off. He will not indulge our inattention. He will be taken seriously. However practiced we become at tuning out sounds we don't want to hear, including the sound of God's displeasure at sin, God finds new ways to penetrate our defensive deafness. I love that term, our defensive deafness. Deafness. And any, any of us who have kids or have been kids know what we're talking about. That we are good at our selective hearing and often our attempts to, or we attempt to drown out the sound of there is something wrong. But at the same time, there are unavoidable moments in life where we experience deep pain. 
and we say, this should not be like this. The world should not be like this. Life should not be like this. And we could hear Jesus with a resounding voice say, yes, exactly. You're starting to get it now. So <clears throat> what we're going to see is how God then brings this judgment. Because again, we see that the judgment is both for discipline or helping people to turn in repentance to God, or ultimately for condemnation for those who choose to reject God. And so the pain that we experience in life, it always is a sign or a megaphone that God uses to say something is not right. We know instinctively in our own physical bodies, we hate and avoid physical pain, but it's a necessary thing for us to be in tune with the reality of what is actually happening in our physical body. When people don't have the ability to feel physical pain, which is something that happens sometimes for one reason or another, people can either be born without or lose their sense of physical pain. Often it leads them to die earlier because they don't have signals from their body telling them that something is wrong. So the pain that we experience in life ultimately is used by God to, to let us know that something is not right. So these horsemen that we see in the beginning of the chapter, they're some of the, probably some of the um, most widely used, even culturally, images that come out of the book of Revelation, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, probably something you've heard before. But a couple things about just generally, uh, number Number one, the, there's four of them, which is kind of, we see both with the four living creatures. We see the four living creatures taking positions like north, south, east, west. Basically, it's kind of this, this universality, like they are all around. And so the same thing with these four horsemen, basically like north, south, east, and west covering the entire globe. Or like if you're a flat earther, like all four corners, like whatever, however you think about that. Um, we just, you know, that's not my, that's not, not my thing. Okay. So whatever you think about that, you can, you, you can learn later. Um, <laughs> but they're all over. Okay. So it's all encompassing the entire earth. Now, these are um, both uh, symbolic in a sense that they, they represent something, but they're also, I believe, real Beings, real spiritual beings, and in particular, evil spiritual beings that are given limited authority by God to do a limited amount of evil. So this is something that God, only God could do, but in his sovereignty, there are um, both in our world, the physical world, we have humans that decide, I don't want to follow God. I want to do my own thing. I, and we have our own evil agendas. We see the same thing playing out in scripture in the spiritual realm. There are evil spiritual beings that want to do evil. They want to bring destruction. And so God in his sovereignty says, all right, I will let the effects of evil take this much or take place this much. I will give you this much authority and this much ability to do evil because if they were unfettered, if they were given unlimited authority, they would just, I mean, probably none of us would be here today. But the reality is, is that God has given them a limited amount of authority to, to produce the exact amount of uh, judgment that he intends to take place. And ultimately, it is just the natural consequences of evil, of rebellion against God. So <clears throat> the way the Bible talks about these evil spiritual beings is ultimately these are our true enemies. These, these evil spiritual beings, beings are who we fight against. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the other political party you don't like. No, it says, so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. So that is who our fight is against and praise the Lord that he has limited their authority. Now you see that with each of them, they were, as we read through, they were given a certain amount of authority. The first rider was given a crown, a certain amount of authority, and then given, they were given a specific amount, like kind of, this is your little chunk that you can mess with this much and no more. We see that kind of in the book of Job as well, that there's an evil spiritual being who wants to mess with Job. And God says, all right, you can do so much, but no more. 
And now these things are difficult, but also in the, in the context of Revelation, we see what it is accomplishing. God is using it to accomplish his, and unfold his plan for both bringing justice against evil. So evil is used in, in one sense to bring justice on injustice, which is kind of an amazing concept to think about, that there own attempts to thwart God's kingdom is turned against them. And not only that, but God ultimately uses it to establish his kingdom completely, just as Jesus through death ultimately claimed eternal life for each of us. So <clears throat> this is what God is doing, using, allowing these evil spiritual beings to do what they want to do, giving them limited authority to bring judgment. So there's also a place where their authority ends and our authority begins. And this is what we're going to look, look at as we walk through each one of these things. Because each one of these spiritual beings only has so much authority, both from God, what, they can, what he allows them to do, but also we as human beings, get we, our autonomy is not taken away. Our choice is not taken away. The Bible never says, oh yeah, you, you were just made to do that. No, every person is held accountable for their actions. We're given a certain amount of authority um, by God. And so their authority ends at a certain point and ours begins. So let's jump in this first white horse and the rider on the white horse ultimately uh, is deception and represents Deception and is the embodiment of deception, and that is amplified by our desire to be God. So it's funny because some people, as they as they interpret this, some people think that this is Jesus, and I think that's pretty incorrect. Um, they think that because Jesus is shown as also riding a white horse um, later on in chapter 19, but it's a very different type of description. And uh, much more detailed and much more obviously Jesus. This one is pretty obviously um, a deceptive spiritual being who has kind of the appearance of righteousness, uh, but is false. And so scripture talks about how Satan often presents himself as a angel of light where you would, he would come and his ideas are like, oh, that kind of sounds like a good idea, actually. That sounds like a good thing for my life. And then it turns out to actually lead to destruction. So that's what Satan comes to do. He comes to deceive. This is how he attempts to conquer and establish his own kingdom is through his act of deception. And we see this dynamic not only here in Revelation, but we see it right away in the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. See, Satan didn't have authority to come in and take Adam's you know, face and smash an apple in it and like, oh, you did it. It doesn't work like that, right? God, we have been given a certain amount of authority. And so it's our choice whether to um, do what God has designed us to do under his authority or to try to build our own kingdom. And obviously with Adam and Eve, they fell to, the, to Satan's deception that they could be like God, that they could discern what is right and wrong for their own life, that they didn't have to listen to, to God's commands or decrees, they could just do whatever they wanted and decide for themselves. And that's how they would actually find life. And Adam and Eve are like, that sounds great. Munch, munch, munch. And that, and that is something that we continue to do today. We fall to the same deception. And it sounds very present to us when we think about just cultural messages that we receive. You find out what is good for your own life. Nobody else can tell you, including God, could tell you what is good for you, what is best for you. You do what you want to do. And we're like, that sounds great. Munch, munch, munch. And so in, we still are caught up by, in this deception. And his deception, if we said, no, that's not true, God is the only source of life, then his deception would have no power. But we cooperate with it by our desire to be God and it amplifies his rule and his authority and his, and his deceptive power. So that's, that's the white horse and you'll kind of see there's a progression. So from deception, we move to the red horse, which is war amplified by tribalism. So this rider is given 
authority to take peace from the earth by dividing people and making them hate each other to the point that they begin to kill one another. And there, there are just countless examples of this throughout history. But one of the quickest ways to grow a movement is to start making people afraid of another group of people. If you can make people feel afraid of another group of people, you will grow a movement pretty quickly. And that movement is based on hatred of another group that you have to subdue, you have to put control over in one way or another. Sometimes that's politically, sometimes it goes all the way to genocide and things like that. Control over this other group, in groups, out groups, tribalism. And ultimately, this is just straight from hell. And it's, it's just mind-boggling when you look up the statistics of how many people have been killed by war. Not just soldiers in battle, but just like civilians or just genocides that have happened. You know, there are just very present examples in very recent history. And all of these just have the absolute stench of hell. And this is something that we see over and over again throughout, throughout the book of Revelation as we see these characters um, kind of coming to life before our eyes, these spiritual beings, that this is 100% the way of Babylon, the way of the world, and also the way of the dragon, the this evil spiritual forces in the world. See, these two characters, the uh, the dragon being Satan and also Babylon being kind of a, um, a type of any worldly powers that are against God's design. These are, this is how they move. This is how they work. This is how they gain control and try to conquer and gain victory. And I think, unfortunately, many Christians have just bought into this 100%. Maybe not killing people per se, but thinking that the way that we are going to achieve victory is primarily going to be in this life by establishing our own kingdoms, whatever that looks like. Sometimes it looks as innocent as we're going to build the biggest church we can possibly build for God. And then they just manipulate and abuse people behind the, the guise of, well, it's for God. But really, it's just to stroke a narcissistic pastor's ego. Or with, uh, maybe with other people thinking we need to establish safety and comfort for our religion. And so everybody else outside of that needs to bend the knee to me. We need to gain power over them so that they have to do what we say. And obviously we have historical examples of Christians who thought that the best way to settle theological disputes or land disputes was to straight up kill people. And I would just say for us today, that might seem far-fetched, but I would say Jesus' Jesus's words were pretty clear. He said, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. So I would just encourage us this morning that if our beliefs or any of our thoughts, whether it's political, theological, moral, any of these thoughts or beliefs that we hold, if any of them lead us to the conclusion that we are better than anyone else, you are deceived. It's not the way of Jesus. That is the way of hell. That is the way of the dragon. It's not the way that Jesus conquers. So if a certain person or group of people make you feel disgust, fear, hatred, you are deceived. And we need to come before Jesus and repent because this is not the way a child of God lives. A child of God is someone who is growing in self-sacrificial love that includes those who are your enemies. Because remember who our real enemy is. It's not flesh and blood. Every person that you've ever met has potential to be a child of God. We do not know whose name is written in the book of life. We do not know who would choose to step into a relationship with Jesus. The only thing that we know is we are called to give of ourselves sacrificially. And unfortunately, many times the, our response to the world is just to throw more of the world back at them. 
That's why so many people think that Christians, they can name a lot of things that Christians are against, but they don't know anything that we care about or anything that we are for. They know we care about what they wear, how they dress, how they talk, you know, who they are attracted to. They know all these things. They know what we, what we don't like, but they know very little about Jesus. They know little, very little about what he's done to conquer sin in their life and give them a space where they can actually come and repent from their sin. All they're told is their sin. So they're not given a real gospel from the very Christians who claim to have it. And I've just felt terrified thinking about, um, just thinking about how far so many Christians, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not necessarily immune from this either, um, I think we all need to be regularly letting the Holy Spirit convict us where we have gone wrong. Even last night, I'll just admit, I was up, I, I usually get up really early when I speak on Sundays. So I, I got up at 4 a.m. this morning. I was trying to go to bed and our neighbors were shooting off fireworks. And they were having a fun time and it's 4th of July and I get it. But I was so mad and I, you, and I had so many thoughts of how I could get even with them. <laughs> and... <clears throat> And I was, man, I was just convicted this morning that anything that makes me feel, you know, hatred or disgust towards another group of people, that is deception. And I just imagined what, you know, I, in how it would play out if I go over there and, you know, yell at them or whatever, get my own fireworks and shoot it at their house. Or <laughs> I had a lot of creative ideas. And <clears throat> what, would it, what would have happened if they did that and then today they came, decided to come to church and they're like, wait, that's the guy preaching? I don't want any of this. But I think that's what's happened to so many people when it comes to Jesus. They've met his children and they don't think they want anything to do with him. And so let's continue. The black horse... So again, we, we see uh, deception that's amplified by our desire to want to be God. We see war that's amplified by our tribalism, our selfishness. And then we see the black horse, which is uh, an embodiment of famine, which is amplified by our greed. So this rider on the black horse has scales that are for weighing out like a, ra a ration um, in a time of famine. And so it says like a wheat, like this much wheat for this much money. And basically it's saying like, you can just get only what you need to survive for one day of work. So you work for a day, you get the food for that day. There's no opportunity to thrive or progress past that. You're just stuck at that level, just barely scraping by. And then you think about those who maybe don't even have the opportunity to, to earn money. And it's even more difficult. And even at, at this time, just shortly after this book was written, AD 92, Roman Emperor Domitian, he had the vineyard here. He wanted to cut down the vineyards in a time where they had a major wheat shortage. He wanted to cut down the vineyards, but the wealthy people said, no, 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 we still want the wine. And so they put so much pressure back on him that he decided, okay, I guess we'll just let the poor people starve and so that the rich people can still have luxury. And that's exactly what is talked about where it says, don't touch the oil and the wine, where there's going to be this division between some people barely are making ends meet, like they barely have what it takes to get by while other people uh, are living in luxury. See, in the world right now, um, we have the means to feed everybody in the world. Absolutely. We absolutely have the capacity to make that much food. But deception and divisions and greed mean that some people live in luxury while other people are barely making it. And I think it's easy to put that in our context where we're like, yeah, CEOs made 400% more than their base laborer last, this last year. So yeah, that's so unequal. Which yeah, I mean, is that unequal? Yes, those dollar amounts don't add up. But you think about our experience, um, the, the type of things that, and there's real poverty in America. So I'm not, I'm not, saying that. But what I am saying is there's a stark difference between what most of us experience uh, here in our country um, than other people around the world. And we can't necessarily control if there are natural disasters like drought or other natural causes of famine. But if as a human race, we said no to evil and we used our wealth 
in our, in our positions of power to serve, it really wouldn't be that big of a deal. Because it's like, oh, that country's having a hard time. Those specific people are having a hard time. No problem. We got plenty of food. Send it over there. Boom. Problem solved. But it doesn't work like that. And obviously the problems are so complicated. Even just trying to send aid somewhere is so complicated because we as a human race continue to abuse our, our systems. We continue to abuse our power. And everybody's just trying to take, 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 take. And so greed is such a huge problem for each of us. Estimates are these days that about 50 million people live in some kind of slavery throughout the world right now. 50 million people live in slavery of some kind. And it doesn't, not, that doesn't mean it all looks the same. Usually our, the way we think about slavery was, um, is, you know, kind of the, the South slavery that we experienced in the, in the early years of America and, and all of the stuff that we've experienced since then. Not necessarily that, but people who are living in some kind of bondage in either because of uh, low, like super, super low pay or, you know, human trafficking, all of these different situations, 50 million people, which is more people than have been enslaved than ever before in history. And so one of the, thing, one of the things that really broke my heart recently that I learned about is that... Um, Although we don't necessarily, like slavery is completely outlawed, thank the Lord, in our country now. Um, we still benefit from the work of slaves around the world. Did you know that in your cell phone, you have a lithium ion battery? And that in that lithium, one of the necessary ingredients for a lithium, lithium ion battery is something called cobalt. There are the, the main manufacturer of cobalt in the world is the Democratic Republic of Congo. They make 50% of all the cobalt used in the entire world, mostly in the West. So out of that 50% that they have, 20% of that comes from what they call artisanal miners, which is basically people who show up, do hard manual labor for almost no money, they're in completely unsafe working conditions. Cobalt is toxic. So these people are dying. They die in these unsupported tunnels that they dig to get to the cobalt. So that's 10% of all the cobalt in the world is essentially made from slave labor. In a room this size, likely we've got some of that in our phones. And <clears throat> not only that, but in 2017, estimated 40,000 children were in those mines. So why are they mining that? Does the Democratic Republic of Congo need that much cobalt? No, we do. So I don't have a good answer for that this morning. But I think it's important that we begin to understand what kind of systems that we are a part of and the way that we are using the power that we have and the wealth that we have, even if it might not seem like much, we have each individual stewardship before the Lord. And it's really made me rethink the stuff that I buy. And that's one example. There are many, many more of things that we, ways that we benefit in the West from slave labor, even though it's not presently happening right here. We benefit from it. So I don't, again, I don't have answers for all this stuff, but at, at the very least, it makes us agree with the, with the premise of the book of Revelation that only Jesus can work out this insane mess that we have cooperated with evil to make. See, because if people would say no to evil, no to greed, this would be done. But it seems that as, as a human race, we have no problem ruining somebody's entire life just to have a few more dollars or have a little more luxury. And I think we, as, as the American church, have a unique uh, calling to steward what God has given us in the way that we do that. Again, I wish I had more answers on that right now. I, I'm, in the, I'm in a process, but I'll invite you with me. Lastly, we see a pale green horse, which is an embodiment of epidemic disease that's amplified by exploitative stewardship. So, 
There's this progression from one horse to the next. You see deception that leads to war, that leads to famine, because famines often are caused by war. And then sickness that ultimately leads to death. And you kind of see in there, there's kind of all this stuff that said, it says like wild beasts and sword, and it sort of ties back to God's um, covenant uh, curses that he said, this will happen if you decide not to follow me and, and to build your own evil kingdoms. And so um, even with all of our medical advances, isn't it amazing that even with all of our medical advancements, even though the fact that even a hundred years ago, people would die from stuff that we can just go to the pharmacy and get a pill for and we're fine. Like that's amazing. Praise God for that. But at the same time, we have not been able to, to in any large manner, extend our life expectancy, expectancy. Isn't that amazing? Even with all of our medical advancements, we cannot seem to outrun our poor, poor stewardship of our minds, our bodies, and the earth around us. See, we tend to pollute our world and ourselves in a careless pursuit of ease and excess. I've got a fitness watch that basically just says, well, maybe next time. And <laughs> We, and we have more access to information than ever before. We have more ability to connect with people around the world, exchange ideas and thoughts and entertainment and all this stuff. We have more access to all these things, but it's causing even more mental illness and anxiety than we had before. So we can't seem to outrun these things. We seem to keep saying yes to evil and no to the Lord. Now, again, some of these things like, is money inherently evil? Is power inherently evil? No, not at all. That's why Jesus said, don't, you don't, you don't wield power like the world does. You use it to serve. You use your wealth to serve. Anything that's a stewardship, you use it to serve. So that's the way that uh, that the world does things. That's the way that evil spiritual beings do things. Let's see, as Jesus opens the fifth seal, this one's completely different. Now we get a picture of saints who are huddled under the altar of God. And we see a picture of sacrificial love, suffering, and death. That's the way of the lamb. And it's how we conquer evil. See, this is for sure specifically talking about martyrs. It could represent just all who have died in Christ. Um, but for sure, it specifically says that these are, who, these are those who have died for their faith. But this seal... As Jesus opens it, it initiates a prayer from these saints to God, a prayer to God to bring justice. See, these are people who didn't fight back when they were wrongfully killed. But instead, their way of seeking justice was coming to God in prayer. So in contrast to the world, the children of God love their enemies. And they don't try to take justice into their own hands. They pray for those who persecute them and they love their enemies. So you get this picture of those saints who are huddled under this altar and they're like, Jesus, I maybe didn't do a whole lot with my life. I didn't accomplish all this amazing stuff, but what I was, I gave it for you. And I might not even have anybody left in the world that even remembers my name but I know you do and I gave it all for you and I'd do it again. And they just say, and justice is yours. Vengeance is yours. You do what you do perfectly and we will wait for you. See, that is how a Christian fights. That is how Jesus fought on our behalf was through suffering love. We get a very stark contrast of power and meekness that these saints were given, they didn't come in with it, they were given robes of victory and righteousness because they belonged to Jesus and they were covered and washed by his blood. See, we don't conquer the way that the world conquers. We conquer through suffering love, through prayer, and through obedience to Jesus, even to death. That's how we conquer. Now, in our context, we may not be martyred for our faith, but we sure can live for Jesus. We can still give our lives for Jesus every day. Every day.
And ultimately at the end, the sixth seal, we won't jump to the, we won't get to the seventh seal that's, that jumps forward into chapter eight. So we'll get there. But the sixth seal, the last one we're going to look at for today, ultimately we have a picture of God, those who, who refuse to repent. We see that they are, they see their idols crumble before them. And at the end of it all, they say, who can stand before the wrath of the lamb? That sin is serious and the only, the only cure is the blood of Jesus. They trusted in their own wisdom. They trusted in their own safe places, these mountains, these islands. They trusted in the sun, moon, and stars, the things that we just take for granted. They're going to be there. All of it's gone. It's all gone. And the rhetorical answer to the question, who can stand, is those who are in Christ. That's it. Those are the only ones who stand because it's not based on our merit, but on his. So we're going to today celebrate our unity with Christ. If we've put our faith in Jesus, we get to celebrate our unity with Christ through communion this morning. And it's a beautiful sacrament that Jesus gave to us to personally identify with what he accomplished on our behalf. And just to share, just kind of personally, the journey that God's taken me on and just deeper understanding. When I grew up in church, um, you know, before I started taking communion, I had some conversations with my parents and we talked about what it meant and, and just kind of the way that it symbolizes what Jesus has done for us. And as for me, as I'm sure has happened, has happened with you as my understanding of the gospel, what Jesus accomplished for me as, as that's deepened, as my relationship with him has deepened, so has my appreciation for communion. And specifically in the last few years, I was just, I've just been shocked thinking about how Jesus didn't just have an ideological love or a conceptual love for us, but he embodied love for us in his physical body on the cross. It's just mind boggling that that is what we remember as we take a physical piece of bread and some juice and we remember the, the body and the blood of Jesus, the real stuff the real material that Jesus became and gave for us. And then um, I also felt some pretty deep sorrow and conviction when I recognized a thought pattern in myself as I was thinking about, you know, flow of service and stuff. This was, this was um, probably a couple of years ago, but I was thinking about the flow of service and my, my thought about communion was, what is the most efficient way that we can do this? And I just felt pricked by the Holy Spirit because he was like, no, 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 no. You're missing the whole point. See, for hundreds of years, the whole church gathered around the table, the body and blood of Jesus. That was what they gathered around. And certainly they, they also got into God's word together and they, they shared and, and, uh, in all sorts of different ways. But the, the center point was um, communion. And so today, as we take communion, I don't want us to rush through it. And I want us to read what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll invite the worship team to come up. But I want to read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we read that a lot. But then the next part, Paul says, he says, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then he gives this very stern warning. He says, this is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. 
See, when we come to the body and blood of Jesus Christ, we examine ourselves and we say, how, like a good question to ask is, how do I come in a worthy way? So I examine myself and say, am I coming in a worthy way? How do I come in a worthy way so that I'm not drinking judgment onto myself or eating judgment onto myself? We come through Jesus. That is the only way that you can come in a worthy way. You come through a real relationship with Jesus that we've, we've said, Jesus, I accept what you did for me on the cross. I turn from my sin. I recognize that I'm a sinner and I wanna become your child. That is how we come in a worthy way. And so today I don't wanna rush it. I don't want it to be like we're just taking our pills in the morning. I want us to take a moment and we're just gonna reflect and we're just gonna let the Holy Spirit bring to mind. Is there any specific thing that you would bring to my mind? Sin that you want me to confess before you? I know that it's paid for, but I, I want to recognize my need for your salvation even today. My ongoing need that we step into relationship with Jesus and we are saved, but we are also being saved day by day. That we recognize again today our need for the mercy of God. That if not for his mercy, none of us would be here. None of us would be able to stand. None of us would be able to boldly approach the throne of grace and experience communion with God. So Jesus, we just open our hearts to you and we ask you to examine us and show us if there's anything anything that we need to confess back to you. Anything that we've done that has grieved your heart. We, all, we know we all have stuff. So just show us specifically today, what do you want us to confess to you? Even as we respond to your word, Jesus, we recognize that there are probably lies or deceptions from the enemy that we've believed, namely that we could be God of our life, that we should make the decisions for our life. And we just confess that to you, Lord. We confess our hatred for people being disgusted at people who aren't like us or making ourselves feel superior to somebody else or that somebody else is inferior to us. Jesus, we confess that to you. We receive your forgiveness for what you did on the cross, covered past, present, and future. We recognize our greed before you, Lord, that we often worship the idol of excess. And we just turn away, we tear it down, and we come to you and we say, change me, Lord. Help us to move from greed to generosity. And God, we also just recognize the way that we have exploited our stewardship from you and made things about me without much care for others. And maybe, yeah, maybe that's our finances. Maybe it's just the way we've been treating people in relationships. We've been exploitive in our relationships. What can I get out of this versus how can I sacrificially give? And God, we just confess it to you. And again, just recognize that without your mercy, none of us could stand. But by the blood of Jesus, here we are in your presence not by anything that we've done but through the blood of Jesus filled with your spirit so as we take the bread and we take the cup just as those elements go into our body and nourish us so much more your Holy Spirit indwells us and fills us and strengthens us directs us Let's take the bread together.
Jesus, one thing you did for us is that you eternally have a body now. You stepped out of heaven, took on human flesh for us, and now live eternally with your resurrected body, the first of all who will be resurrected in you. And as we think about your body, we think about all you did. We think about your hands that touched the leper. Nobody else would touch. But your hands reached out and touched and healed, gave comfort, closeness and friendship, connection that hadn't been felt in years. Jesus, we think about your mouth that spoke the words, peace be still, and the waves ceased. Your mouth that said, come out and demons flee. We think about your eyes that saw the little children and you said, let them come. That's who my kingdom is for. We think about your feet that walked through the streets as you carried your cross. All the while mocked and jeered, but your only concern was for us, for the joy set before you. Thank you. We thank you for your body, Jesus. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, we thank you for your blood because without your blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. But your sin has once for all become the perfect atoning sacrifice. If not for you, it would be our blood, our life demanded, but you gave all of yourself poured out for us a new covenant between us and you that you would obey every little dot of God's law that we could never follow ourselves and then we could come by grace And Jesus, we just thank you. We don't want to take it for granted. We thank you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that is a guarantee of our eternal life with you. And it's in this attitude we want to respond and worship. Let's stand and sing together.